0: Coming at you from New Jersey, the capital of misery, and the place where metal forgot to die, this is Here Lies Metal, the podcast that brings you the origins, history, and culture of everything metal. Once again, I am Maledictus, and I will be your overlord for today and all of eternity. Welcome. As usual, before we begin, I've decided do the news once again. And there are a few stories that the metal media at large has been covering this week in the last. And if you haven't heard them already, get ready for the maledicted spin on these metal news stories. Let's get underway. We haven't had someone on the Here Lies Metal show in the metal world die in a while, so unfortunately we have to report that. And it seems that Cave-In bassist Caleb Schofield has died in a horrific car accident. However, Cave-In and Old Man Gloom bassist Caleb Schofield died almost instantly after his pickup truck crashed at high speed into a toll barrier. This happened on the F.E. Everett Turnpike in Bedford, Massachusetts um, last Wednesday, March 28th. He was only 38 years old. Caven, of course, was a post-hardcore band formed in Massachusetts in the mid-90s, featuring Converge and Mutoid Man's vocalist, Steve Brodsky. They had recently reunited in 2009 and were known for their major album release, Antenna. So rest in peace, Caleb Skullfield. Ozzy Osbourne has joined the Alamogordo Chamber of Commerce during his World Detour, which I think he's going on with his son... Jack, Jack the Stripper Osborne. Uh, while in town, the Osbornes visited the ranch owned by Alamogordo Chamber of Commerce director G.B. Oliver, which led to a unique opportunity. Here's a quote. The way that that came about, someone gave them my name. Apparently, they were down for filming several things and they wanted to go to a ranch, Oliver told the Alamogordo News. It was Ozzy Osborne, and his two children, Jack and Kelly. They were interested in riding horses. They wanted to learn how to rope, crack a bullwhip, shoot rifles. They wanted to camp out under stars and cook a meal. Some city slickers want to come out to the country and learn what real living's about. It's okay with me. I'll even forget about that time he pissed all over the Alamo. That's Texas anyway. That ain't New Mexico. Oliver asked Oz if he was interested in becoming an official member of the Gordo Chamber of Commerce. Ozzy told me he appreciated all that and how oh, it's so pretty out here New Mexico. I said there was only one thing you had to do now is join the Alamogordo Chamber of Commerce without hesitation. He said, done. And sign the card, said Oliver, who posted photos the occasion on Facebook. You can you just imagine Ozzy doing this? I really like Alamogordo New Mexico. Chamber of Commerce. I've been to Alamogordo before, actually. I took a long road trip from Denver to L.A., driving a hole, and Alamogordo was on the way. So it was a very small town with very good Mexican food, and right outside town is the White Sands National Monument, which is a national park. It's just, the sand is white there. It's powdery and white for some reason. I don't know what the geological formation is. Also, it's where they used to. it was an alternate site to land the space shuttle, which uh, that field is still there is also home of the White Sands Missile Testing Range. So there's a lot of cool stuff going on there, if you like that kind of thing. However, it is an interesting little town with good Mexican food. Alamogordo, New Mexico. Let's move on. Ex-Metallica producer says, and Justice for All reissue might feature alternative versions. As we said before, we had covered this before, saying how there is going to be no change and you're not going to hear Jason's bass when this album is released later this year. However, The Metallica reissue campaign next up, of course, is Justice for All, coming out in November of this year. And fans have been desperately hoping the band might give it a proper mix, supposedly, you know, possibly hear Jason's part in the mix. And the the only concrete news that we've heard so far has come from the original mixer, Steve Thompson, who said there's going to be no plans to do that. However, the producer, Fleming Ross Ross, Russ Sussman said, I, th- I think he is uh, a Danish guy like Larry, so let's do the Danish accent. A remaster cut is coming out now. I'm actually in the process of sending stuff to Metallica and writing the essay about how it was recorded and what we did. The last year was a master of Puppets reissue. issue. Justice is going to come out this November. Same thing, vinyls, loaded CDs, rough mixes, and demos. I'm guessing that the main version will be the master thing. It's going to sound more as it less did, but it might have an alternative versions. I know for sure that nobody's asking me to remix or anything, but I'm pretty much I asked Steve Thompson and Michael Barbiero to do that either. But I think they're going to they go on with remixing and then they're going to stick more bass in there. I have no idea, but we'll see when it comes out. So there you go, people. You know, we might hear Jason after all, but we'll see. Probably in November it's coming out, so we're working on it right now. Will we hear a bass in Justice for All after all? Will Jason get justice? Who knows? We'll find out. More rumors surface of a new ACDC album with Axl Rose as the frontman. Who would have thought? Like, imagine if you went into a coma back in 1988 and you woke up today and Axl Rose was singing for ACDC. It's like the movie Sleeper. Everything is just backwards today. It's crazy. Anyway, in addition to raking in a rumored insane amount of cash while on tour with the aging ACDC, it seems. More and more likely that Axel will serve as the band's frontman for the next release, which Angus Young has confirmed to be in the making. So they will be coming out with a new album soon if you like ACDC. Seems like Axel has officially replaced Brian Johnson as a lead vocalist of ACDC by this point. And yes, like I said before, these are strange times indeed. But this information was confirmed by ACDC's official biographer, Murray Engelhard. Yes, they have their own biographer. That's how ridiculously wealthy and successful A C D C is. Of course they're paying Axl Rose a ridiculous amount of money to sing with them. So we'll see how that goes. That's like I said, if Donald Trump could be president, then Axl Rose could sing for A C D C. So that's where we're going. Here's some political news. We don't usually get political, but this seems pretty important. We always we keep talking about Testament. They keep to be, they seem to be making our news every week now. So here we go again. Bay Area thrash gods Testament have apparently caused a social media uproar in the recent picture proudly posing with an Israeli flag. Guitarist Alex Skolnick, a day after the concert, Skolnick took to his Facebook page to explain a picture of Testament holding an Israeli flag should not imply that he and his bandmates support the occupation or that they are Zionist sympathizers in any way. However, Skolnick explained these actions, and I and I have to agree with what Skolnick said here. Listen up. Alex Skolnick doesn't get an accent, by the way. He doesn't, he doesn't talk interestingly. Only people that have an interesting voice get impersonations. Anyway, here we go. I wish that were all that needs to be said. However, unlike a couple of friendly bandmates of mine, thrown for a loop for their subsequent rage comments underneath pics of themselves posing with a team of young Israeli women in uniforms fulfilling the required service for the IDF, I'm anticipating a lot of blowback. Now, before you launch into accusation of my being a supporter of the occupation, Zionist sympathizer, so on and so forth, let's look at a few things that are simultaneously true. The symbol within this flag, the Star of David, is both a symbol of a nation of Israel and a symbol of Jewish heritage. One could be proud of the star and simultaneously feel appalled by some of the actions of the state of Israel and their behavior with certain segments of the population. I am and I do. One could be a massive fan of Pink Floyd's Roger Waters, who has been a major activist against playing in Israel. If you play in Israel, this guy seems to scold you. But let's continue. I still consider his call for a cultural boycott of Israel and thus depriving its general population of music, which can be the best voice for change, among the worst ideas I've ever heard. I do. A pop artist who recently bowed to pressure from him, which was Lorde, canceled an Israeli date, yet went ahead with a concert in the Philippines on the same tour just after their leader Duarte committed a massacre of civilians highlighted the selective of Waters and his and the BDS movement. So yeah, so the guy from Philip like, of course people won't play Israel, but they'll go and play like Russia or the Philippines or somewhere else that oppresses people or even the United States of America who oppresses people. That's no there's no problem with that, but you can't play Israel. There is a lot of hypocrisy there. And of course the guy from the Philippines goes and shoots people himself. I think Donald Trump sees that guy and is like, wow, I wish I could do that. Who wish I could do that? Continuing. A flag can be both a symbol of a nation's government and a symbol of a nation's people. The people includes those who oppose their own government, including the Likud, the, the Likud party and Prime Minister Benjamin Netiatu, who I, too, oppose with a vengeance. However, all the people should not be judged by the worst transgressions of their own government. I'm not too keen on all the things done in the name of my country's flag. Preemptive war... Japanese internment, Indian displacement, slavery, I can go on, but it's still my flag. He's referring to America, of course. One can wade into these into this issue knowing it will piss off folks on all sides, friends, fans, and otherwise, and they could decide to go ahead and do so anyway. So that is the that is a message from the great Alex Skolnick, great guitar player from Testament. He is defending his actions of posing with the Israeli flag as does not mean he supports this occupation and some of the terrible things they do there. So so Roger Waters, shut the fuck up. You know, don't tell people they can't play somewhere, all right? You don't represent their fans. Anyway, that is the news for today. Now, of course, we said we are going to add this section to our news every week, or every two weeks, shit that Varg says. If you're not familiar with Varg, he is the former Count Grishnok who was sentenced to, I don't know, it was only like a couple of years in jail in Sweden or Norway, was it? Um, For killing Euronymous, he claims it was self-defense. I think he stabbed Euronymous 20 times in self-defense. He broke into Euronymous' house, and he claims it was self-defense. I think he wanted money. I mean, I think he was justified for being mad at Euronymous, as Euronymous was rumored to be sort of like a lazy kind of trust fund kid in it just for the fame. Someone like Varg was a lot more focused in making the scene successful, but however, you didn't have to kill the guy because he was inept at what he did. So... Of course, as you know, that whole story, we'll probably do a podcast on that particular story and um, the entire Norwegian black metal scene and the ridiculousness of it. However, Varg, he has a YouTube channel called the Thulean Perspective, and he is basically a Euro survivalist. He lives in France, drives around in a VW bus. He tells you about how the world's going to end and how society is going to collapse any moment now. He's one of those guys. There's a lot of those YouTube channels in America. Well, this guy is a European version of it. He's also a Eurocentrist. And, of course, he claims he is not a racist. He just believes, you know, the European people, Europe is for Europeans and all that stuff, but we won't get into that. Um, but the, the kind of bullshit that spews from his um, mouth is always entertaining every week, no matter what it is. This week, he shows us how to... Uh, change the speedometer well he, he makes a few videos a week but we're gonna pick this one particular how to change the speedometer cable in his vw but he doesn't speak during the whole video he just has text flash to the screen and the text is saying how you know global warming is total bullshit and the reason the weather's so crazy recently is because a new ice age is coming new ice age we're due for a new ice age man-made influence and destruction of the environment cannot change mother nature at all and the earth is going to cool and of course people like him would love that that would of course probably mean the collapse of society and i think people like him just can't wait for that to happen you know he's basically the same guy same as one of those militia guys in montana or exact same thing just a euro version of that if you can imagine it of course i don't think he's armed though or is he we don't know maybe he has swords and axes he does think he's a viking after all And what Viking wouldn't celebrate the return of the ice age? Wouldn't that be like the whole world would be like their home? A land of ice? That's how he lives. And he will have more bullshit for us every week. And so basically he says, why is the weather warmer than usual? Let's find out. He always says, let's find out. And then he just gives you his um, bullshit propaganda where God knows where he's come up with this stuff. So and he basically shows you charts of how... Each ice age cycle, the weather gets warmer first, and then we get an ice age. So, that is shit Varg says for this week. It's very entertaining. Look it up. It's, um, you could find it. I will post the link. I already posted the link on our Facebook, and we will do one every episode, because Varg will always have something ridiculous to say to us, you know, whether it has something to do with his role-playing game. I think he invented a a paper role-playing game called MyFarg or something, or... Something like that. And it's about... this. It's, of course, a Eurocentric role-playing game about living in medieval Europe. But I think there's magic and stuff. He has his ways about him. And he is the heavy metals clown. And I think all the metal sites love... You know, they always monitor him. And, and hey, he's probably making money doing this because he knows he's ridiculous and everyone's watching him. And he's it's probably getting him wealthy. He, of course, ref, claims he refused to do a show in England for something like a half a million dollars to reunite Burtsom, Burtsom as he calls it. And he says, I'd rather be back in jail than to play with Burtsom again. They offered me half a million euros to play, and I would not. So, yeah, right, I'm sure they totally want to hear Burtsom again. They're a pretty shitty band, anyway, if you really listen to them. You know, they're not like, there's some black metal bands who I like, Maybe like Mayhem and, and Dark Throne. However, birds, um, eh, they are kind of silly. But there you go. So we will hear from Count Gri- the former Count, the former murderer Count Grishnak every other week because he has the keen ability, the massive talent, the amazing talent to entertain us in the metal world every week. Because he is ridiculous, and he must know how ridiculous he is. He is playing this part, and it's doing him well. Hey, you know, any kind of exposure is great. And that's what he does. So I wonder who he really is behind there. I yeah, I guess he's probably serious. You know, anyone who, he can't be faking that. He really is dry. Like he shows this Volkswagen that he lives in, I think, with his wife and kids. And he just travels around France. It's probably not welcome in Norway anymore. Why do I keep talking about this guy? We will hear about him every week. That is the news for today. Let's move on to some feedback we've got from the last episode, the Judas Priest review. We had some other people that were at the concert who have something to say about the bands I mentioned, about the review I gave them. Let's go. So regarding our review on Judas Priest last week for the concert and the album, we've had our usual commenter and contributor, uh, Chris from Long Island, who says who, had something to say about me not enjoying the Saxon part of the live show on March 20th. And Chris has claims Maledictus, you are a purveyor of false metal if you do not like Saxon. Duly noted, I, of course, have been accused of being a purveyor of false metal many times by legitimate fans of metal. But I must continue my fight as Maledictus. Sometimes we will not agree, we all have our opinions. Here in the metal world, I'm sorry. I do not like Saxon. I still do not like Saxon. I tried to listen to their albums. It's really boring. i just, I cannot get into them. I love the new wave British heavy metal era of bands. I did an entire show on it. I will probably do more shows on it. And I will probably include Saxon in it. However, they do not interest me. They are not doing, and they had a horrific hair metal phase in the 1980s. Not even Manowar did that. And I know Manowar could be cheesy sometimes. I said it not even Man and War did that. People, they their their hair metal stage was nothing less than horrific. It was worse than most bands in the 1980s. So Saxon, I don't know. I'm glad you guys are back making decent music. Anyway, they're playing alongside with Judas Priest. I mean, how can you really? I mean, if you witness Judas Priest and Saxon, it's not even comparable. Just not a worthy opener for Judas Priest. Sorry, guys, you just don't cut it. Goodbye, Saxon. More like Slaxon. Anyway. Also, um, we have a message here from Samantha, who is also at the show. She's commenting on my reaction to the first band, Black Storm... Black Star Riders. Sorry. And, of course, I said they st- sound like Finn Lizzy because they are Thin Lizzy. She agrees. She's a like, guest. I also thought they sounded like Finn Lizzy. Through a douche filter. <clears> Through a douche filter. Okay. I guess someone didn't like the Black Star Riders. However, you know, it's, you know, it's, you know, a case of a band. Well, it's not really similar. There's a lot of bands today that, you know, young guys that kind of find some old rock star and prop them up and say, look, we have in our band. Sort of like how the Rocky Erickson band does. It's Like, look, we have Rocky Erickson. He's our, you know, and I thought Black Star Riders was going to be a band like that. But it turns out Scott Gorham has sort of been in this band. And it really is another incarnation of Thin Lizzy. Just, you know, he's kind of surrounded by younger guys at this point. They were older guys in the band, but they had quit. So it's really, that is the form the band is in now. So that might really add to them sounding like Thin Lizzy through a douche filter. Because, you know, these are young rock stars with really a different way of thinking than old Scott Gorham. But, you know, we got to give them a chance. So, uh, what else we have? Oh, happy birthday to Ron last week. uh, We'll call out Ron. Happy birthday. You are, what, 41? I'll tell everyone. So, congratulations. You made it. And are those all the call-outs we have for this week? I think so. What else do we have to say? We will continue. We are, This is our 12th episode of the Here Lies Metal podcast. Yay, we made it this far. And, of course, this is going to be an educational episode. We haven't done one of these since the Matthew Hopkins episode. Of course, we have vowed to do historical episodes on many historical figures or events in the metal world. And this particular podcast will be about the infamous and possibly misunderstood Alistair Crowley. Of course, he's been the subject of many a metal song. And I think a lot of metal bands really don't know who he really was. They're like, oh, yeah, he was pretty evil, right? He was into Satan. Eh, we're we're going to find out um, that maybe that's really not the case of who this guy was. However, let's get underway. Let's get on with all these historical facts I've compiled with you. And of course, this podcast took a while. And this, uh, one more thing, most importantly, this is going to be a two-part episode. We're gonna do part one, Alistair Crowley, part two, Alistair Crowley, episode 12 and 13, or possibly 14, maybe we'll do an episode in between. We'll see. There was a lot of information on this guy. He had a very long and very interesting life. They call him the most wicked man in the world. Let's call him the most interesting man in the world because that he was. On top of all that, he was a very wealthy person, Received a very large inheritance at a young age, but obviously we'll get into that. This, of course, makes a lot of what he did in his life possible. If he was a poor guy, I think he would have ended up really just unknown and forgotten. Think of him as someone from Downton Abbey. That takes place during the Edwardian times. You know, basically a bunch of very wealthy people where you're not exactly sure how they got that wealthy. They just always were. Well, that goes for Crowley. He was someone that just always was wealthy. He never really had to have a job in his life, the early part of his life anyway. So think of him as sort of a wicked version of Downton Abbey in a way. Anyway, let's get on with the podcast. This, of course, is Alistair Crowley, two Megatherion, Sex, Drugs, and Esotericism. Without any more delay. Here we go. Alistair Crowley, you probably heard the name from the Ozzy song, or maybe that in the songs of Led Zeppelin, or possibly even David Bowie. Known as the most wicked man in the world, the Beast 666, 2 Megatherion, as well as many other grand titles, the legend and legacy of Alistair Crowley lives on to this day. Idolized in the metal and rock worlds alike, countless songs have been written about this mythical figure. But who was this man, and what made him such a legend in popular culture today? For his metal influence, most bands incorrectly portray him as a Satanist, just as the tabloids did in Edwardian England when Crowley graced the spotlight. However, From a young age, Crowley simply desired to challenge the Christian establishment by embracing everything that it stood against. Crowley was a highly intelligent and influential man, a poet, a philosopher, a mountaineer and an adventurer. On the other hand, he was also a cruel, sadistic narcissist who cared little for his endless parade of lovers and disciples. He lived lavishly through his sizable inheritance, allowing for his life of privilege, decadence, debauchery, and do-as-thou-wilt philosophy to be a reality, whereas a commoner without the privilege of wealth would have been committed or arrested at first sign of deviation to a draconian code of Edwardian values. Crowley's reign as the great beast would however be limited to the first half of his life, as his opulent and decadent lifestyles would fail to be indefinitely sustained, even by such a sizable inheritance, as a man would never actually hold a job like common folk in his entire life. He would spend the latter years of his life in decline until his lonely death in 1947. This will begin our two-part series on the life and exploits of the infamous Alistair Crowley. In this segment, we will cover his rise to power and his peak of infamy. Let us begin. Edward Alexander Crowley was born on October 12, 1875 to Edward Alexander Crowley Sr. and Emily Bertha Bishop In Royal Leamington Spa of Warwickshire, England, rumors had it that he was born with the shape of hairs on his with hairs on his chest in the shape of a swastika. However, that's probably a lot of hearsay and poppycock. It's a lot of poppycock, most likely. However, it's always fun to find the rumors and and embellishments about this man's life. So that's probably one of the first. I don't know where it came from. Anyway, let's continue. He was born to a wealthy Quaker household. However, they eventually converted into the Plymouth Brethren, who are a fundamentalist Christian cult that originated in England in the 1700s. Definitely not a metal beginning for the infamous Aleister Crowley. His father had become a traveling preacher for the Brethren following the successful sale of a brewing empire that he had established called Crowley's Alton Ales. Imagine if that was still around today. Imagine how much that would sell, you know, just the appeal of that Aleister Crowley beer. I'm sure there's some sort of Aleister Crowley beer around these days. However, that's what really made his family fortune. Ironically, despite his father's devout background, Crowley admired his father and despised his mother, who knew him as the Beast, even at a very young age, only if she met him when he was older. Crowley's father died when he was only 11 in 1887. Young Edward, as his name was, inherited an entire third of his late father's vast wealth. Even from a very young age, when he first started schooling, at Tunbridge schools and Malvern, two schools which he was likely expelled from, he was considered a sadist. It's rumored that Crowley heard that a cat had nine lives, so he killed it nine times in every possible creative way he could think of. Of course, he claimed he did this for science, proving that, hey, the cat had nine lives. I killed it nine times. All for science. Science. Even at a very young age, Crowley despised and questioned the bounds of Christianity. Not the kind of thing that a a young person does, so his intelligence obviously was very advanced for a person of his age. And despite his many disciplinary problems, he actually excelled at his schoolwork, and was proving to be very adept at poetry and chess. Ultimately, upon his expulsion from these early academies, his Surviving mother had elected to have him taught by a private tutor. Basically, he was to be homeschooled by a tutor by the name of Archibald Douglas, who taught him many things, including all of his first exposure to the many vices who he would, that probably would embrace so much in his life. For a man whose future sexual appetite would be off the charts, Crowley first had sex with his mother's maid. That was his first sexual encounter. Uh, Of course, upon finding out, the maid was fired. And rumor has it that this particular maid became a prostitute and was summarily murdered by Jack the Ripper, according to Crowley. And Crowley also, at the same time, claimed that he knew the identity of the Ripper, Mind you, this is a 15-year-old boy claiming he knows who Jack the Ripper is and he had a meeting with him. Let that sink in. (laughs) All right. Crowley was also a closeted bisexual at a very early age, which was actually illegal at the time. So he wasn't flaunting this in a lot of ways as it was very dangerous to do so. In fact, ironically, uh, drugs were perfectly legal back then. You were on your own when it came to drugs. However, any kind of deviant sexual behavior, as they deemed, was actually illegal and you could be imprisoned. So Crowley kind of kept this under under wraps. Crowley had a natural um, inclination to, and an obsession to, in defying the Puritan family in which he was raised, of Victorian and Edwardian morality. As a result, His massive sexual appetite, he frequented prostitutes daily, both male and female. This guy was onto it at a very young age. Upon the completion of his homeschooling and his tutoring, like most rich men back then of English background, he attended Trinity College at Cambridge. When Crowley reached the age of 20 during his time at Trinity College, He changed his name to Alistair, which was not his birth name. Of course, he was born Edward Alexander. He changed the name because his mother had a nickname for him. His mother, who he despised, called him Alec, which he despised. So as a result, he had decided to change his name to Alistair. Early on in his time in Cambridge, he developed a talent for poetry, writing mostly very erotic poetry, which we'll get into soon. He also took up chess and was kind of a chess champion. He really developed very strong skills in chess and considered doing it for a living. Imagine if he went there instead, Crowley becoming sort of the next Bobby Fischer or something like that. That would have been very interesting. He also took up mountain climbing at this age and befriended uh, an experienced mountain climber by the name of Oscar Eckenstein, who would be an important factor in Crowley's climbing career. Now, like I said before about his, his love of poetry, he wrote, he tended to write a lot of pornographic poetry. He seemed to just gravitate towards this at a very young age. He knew where his, his mind was in the gutter from a very young age. It's very interesting and during an era of such Edwardian bounds and restrictions How he developed such a knowledge of such forbidden subjects during that time. It really makes you wonder. As he published this poetry, it was actually illegal in England. So he would publish it under a pseudonym and published it abroad. One of these poem books was titled White Stains, a book of erotic poetry. I can imagine what that means. As I said before, Crowley also had an excessive appetite for sex and frequented prostitutes almost every day at his time in Cambridge and developed gonorrhea as a result. So you can, imagine the, you can imagine the diseases this guy's dick must have had by the time he was of an older age. I can only imagine. But, you know, we won't get into the anatomy of the private parts, the private property of Aleister Crowley and the STD status of his own dick. It was at Cambridge that his interests in the occult had started to develop and he would only accelerate these teachings from then. It was in 1898 that he dropped out of Cambridge despite his excellent performance. There's no doubt about it. Crowley was an extremely intelligent person, an extremely deviant, but very intelligent student. Upon leaving Cambridge in 1898, Crowley was introduced to a George Cecil Jones in one of his trips who taught him, who informed him about the existence of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. This was an occultist society for the elites of England at the time. Other members included Bram Stoker and W.B. Yeats and other elites. Basically, a lot of rich guys in England and women—women women were allowed in it—with a lot of time on their hands. Crowley joined up and was made a neophyte or beginner. This is basically what you where you are ranked when you join certain groups in occultism. You are a neophyte, and he was christened the name Frater Perdurabo, which means one who doesn't fail. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was led by a guy named Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers, who Crowley would be in odds with in the future. It was here that Crowley discovered the Book of Abramelin. And what this book explained was good magic will prevail over dark magic at the end, And what it was basically was was a list of demons and angels for you to summon through ritual based on the premise that one could use their own guardian angel. And everyone, of course, according to this book, has a guardian angel. You could use this guardian angel to exploit black magic if need to. Basically, you could do whatever you want. You can curse people. It's basically a manual for you to get what you want through your guardian angel. Now, during his time at the Golden Dawn, Crowley, being that he was rich, rented a luxury flat on 67 Chantilly Lane in London. He wanted to excel in the ranks of this group. He wanted to be in charge. He was a very ambitious person. He was a very narcissistic person, a very competitive person. But in order to excel in the ranks, he figured he could invite another high-ranking member with financial problems by the name of Alan Bennett to live with him. Of course, Alan was a drug addict, an opium addict, and needed money. So what better way to get what he wanted than to live with Crowley? And, of course, Crowley wanted to learn from this member. Of course, he wanted many other things from this member, too. So he used Bennett for his knowledge of this group. And together and their flat. They indulged in sex, drugs, and rituals, as Crowley would usually do. It was all about sex, drugs, and rituals. This was what Crowley would be doing most of his life. Sex, drugs, and rituals. Repeat if necessary. So Crowley essentially bought his way to the top of this order, as the Order of the Golden Dawn was itself usually short on cash. Naturally, Crowley exploited this weakness and became closer friends with Samuel Matters In order to get his way. Crowley appeared to have what seemed to be unlimited funds at the time. So he was like, oh yeah, you need money? Here you go. What are you going to do for me? So it worked pretty well for him. However, he was unpopular with other members of the Golden Dawn for his libertine lifestyle. He was especially hated by W.B. Yeats, who really despised him, really despised his lifestyle. And despite buying his way straight to the top of the Golden Dawn by assisting Samuel Mathers when he needed. Other members knew what he was about. They knew what he was up to. The leader of the Golden Dawn decision to increase Crowley in ranks. The other members simply did not accept this and it caused a major internal struggle, almost a civil war between two factions of the Golden Dawn. Basically, Mathers and Crowley versus the rest of the members This, of course, would ultimately lead to the disbanding of the Golden Dawn. However, during his time in the Golden Dawn, as a guy with a lot of money and an obsession with the occult, in November of 1899, Alistair Crowley purchased the Boleskine house at Loch Ness. Now, like I said before, Crowley had a lot of money. Upon moving into town, he declared himself the Laird of Boleskine. And with dress in full Highland attire, Crowley had purchased this property as a result of its location near an ancient graveyard, and he believed this was the optimal situation for the ritual that he was planning to undertake. Now, like I mentioned before, the Boluskin house was on the shores of Loch Ness, probably a small, very quaint town. So you can imagine the locals, how they must have felt about this character, Crowley, Openly, op- openly flaunting his obsession with the occult before a very probably devout and superstitious Catholic Scottish population. You can imagine how they must have felt about this guy. It was amazing that they didn't burn him at the stake. Now, he chose this spot to perform the Abramelic ritual. Now, this particular ceremony was a six-month ordeal. He didn't do this overnight. This ritual as instructed in the book of Abramelin, took six months to perform, and it was to summon demons from hell. Crowley worked at this day and night. So you might just imagine the amount of sex and drugs that it required. God knows what sort of conditions and sexual rituals. I mean, can imagine just the scene in there, what this must have been like. There was always, of course, sex involved, um, both homosexual and heterosexual sex with many people, so I can imagine what sort of things must have went on in there during this ritual. I mean, you know, it would make for a great movie, I suppose. However, he did not complete this ritual, which is very bad news for the summoner, according to the book, results in the possession of the summoner. So perhaps Crowley was possessed by demons at this point, because he did not follow through with this ritual or complete it. So maybe... That was a life-changing experience for him. This is where it becomes an episode of Supernatural. Everything he did after that was not by his control, as he was probably possessed, if you believe that sort of thing. I'm not going to be skeptical on a lot of the bullshit in this story, because it's more fun to just go along with it. I'm going to read you what ridiculous things I found in my research. I'm not going to... You know, be like, oh, well, I'm just going to leave things out because they sound ridiculous. I'm going to tell you and let you decide. Maybe I'll make fun of it, though. There's a lot of pretty ridiculous things that happened in Aleister Crowley's career here. Anyway, after a, a few months of these happenings in the house, reports of staff and guests, apparently, that were descending into madness uh, from their experiences in this house of horrors, We might have to do an entire episode just on the Bolaskeen house. It just seems like a very interesting subject and it has more of a history. We'll get into that in the next episode in the legacy of Alistair Crowley. I don't really want to give anything away. Let's do this one piece at a time. During this time, of course, one thing very interesting I found about Crowley is as a result of his vast wealth, he seemed to... uh, be able to just travel on a whim. Of course, in this year, in the year 1900, you know, you couldn't just get on a plane and go somewhere. You had to get in a very large steamship. And it would take weeks and weeks to get where you were going. I mean, obviously when you're wealthy, you'll probably do it in the most comfort available, which, you know, compared to just regular travel today, might have not even been close to that. Who knows? One must give Crowley Credit, where credit is due for his ambition and sense of adventure, because he was definitely a man's man, I have to say, because he was su- constantly subjecting himself to, you know, the discomfort of traveling and going to faraway places that he wasn't familiar with, even though he would be in the most luxury available as he was a wealthy person. It just, there's so many think bad things that can happen to you when you do this, but, you know, what, I guess, what else was he doing? He didn't really have anything else to worry about. He had no ties. So I just find that interesting. And he'll be traveling a lot in this story. He will be circumnavigating the world, I think, a few times in this episode. And this is in 1900. So you have to just get a sense of this guy's desire and obsession for endless adventure. Like I said, he was a man that never stayed put. He seemed to never settle anyway for more than a few months. Probably spent most of his life traveling on ocean liners. So he would travel to Mexico. This would be the first real major trip he would take. And what he did in Mexico was climbed mountains, as he was an enthusiast of climbing mountains since his introduction to Oscar Ecclestein, who would be in his future mountain climbing expeditions. He learned more about Freemasonry. Alistair Crowley was actually a Freemason as well. That's how he uh, had established many of the bases from his future religions that he would develop. A lot of it was based on principles of Freemasonry, which I don't understand don't let me explain it i'm not real versed in the secret teachings of freemasonry and believe it or not he also actually learned to become invisible from the um by summoning the god hippocrates however i didn't know that he had the power to make you invisible however crowley does claim he learned how to be invisible this time in mexico as he claims he was walking around and no one knew he was there so there you go imagine this hello I'm invisible. You can't see me, can you? No, we totally can't see you. Yes, that's what I thought. We'll take his word for it, that Crowley learned to be invisible in Mexico. I once learned to be invisible, too, at work for about seven years. My last job, I think I was invisible for about seven years, so I was able to do that, too, without any summoning of gods or demons like Aleister Crowley had to do. I just, you know... Didn't really even try that hard. It just I became invisible. So I believe it's entirely possible without s- performing any blood rituals. After a time in Mexico and after probably a whole lot of sex and drugs in Mexico, as seemed everywhere Crowley went, it would be sex and drugs and ritual. That's why he traveled. He traveled for business, of course. His next stop would be Hawaii. And on his way to Hawaii, uh, he had made the acquaintance of a lovely married woman on the boat. Uh, Her name was Alice Rogers. This would be one of his many adventures in the carnal arts. Women were a constant in Crowley's life. And as the podcast goes on, you'll be like, damn, this guy. And this guy got around. Of course, he was, um, he found himself infatuated with this married woman. You know, this was what would be a very short-lived affair on a boat. But all boat trips eventually end. So there you go. It was almost like a romantic comedy or something. Only it wasn't funny. His next stop would be Japan and then on to Ceylon, which I believe is Sri Lanka, where he met up with his former mentor in the Golden Dawn, his ally and lover, Alan Bennett, who had helped him in the Golden Dawn. Basically, after the Golden Dawn, Alan had moved to Ceylon to become a Buddhist. And during this time, he initiated levitation with his friend. Yeah, it's just another day in a magician's life. Some levitation. According to Crowley, of course, he seems to just... He has a tendency to just casually talk about his many magical deeds and sexual deeds that he would perform while on the road. Next, he would travel to India. You know, like I said, when you have money, this is just another day at the job. Where he studied yoga. He also contracted malaria, which was normal back then. I mean, if he went somewhere far away like that, somewhere jungle-like... Um, a third world country, one of the colonies, you were likely to get malaria. But, you know, malaria is something you could survive. And being that people back then were way tougher than we were, as no one back then ate Tide Pods and snorted condoms, despite having malaria, he tried to climb K2 with his mountain climbing friend, Oscar Eckenstein. However, they failed, but did reach an altitude of 20,000 feet, and they were the first to do so. So as I said before, Crowley was actually a pretty competent mountain climber, Believe it or not, you know, I, th- I think, you know, there was just a whole group of English, of wealthy English guys that would do that back then. They would simply climb mountains because they are there. We must conquer this mountain. For we are English and it is our destiny to rule the world. We shall conquer all of these brown countries such as India and Nepal. And that includes all of their geographical features. Nothing shall stand in our way. But but despite that Anglo-centric attitude, you have to give them credit for their undying sense of adventure people back then did not sit home and take selfies or go on social media or play video games or make podcasts about nothing back then they went out and did things if you were rich of course i mean if you weren't you probably just lived in the slums of london forever and died a miserable death of tuberculosis or something like that however if you were rich things were the world was yours and they would be adventurous guys were guys back you know Despite how wealthy they were, they were, these guys were fucking men back then. I mean, we've got nothing on them. We are wimps today. It's amazing how despite their, you know, their exposure to unlimited amounts of comfort and luxury, they were so willing to put themselves in such a discomfort. Whereas, you know, if it's a little cold out, we all start bitching. (laughs) It's kind of funny. Anyway, after this adventure, he went back to Paris in 1902, where he wrote more poems, Most likely very dirty poems, but nevertheless. In addition to poetry, well, in Paris, he found himself stuck in the middle of a magic war with former Golden Dawn leader Samuel Mathers. According to the testimony of Crowley, during this magical conflict he had with Samuel Mathers, Samuel Mathers summoned a vampire to kill Crowley. However, Crowley claims he survived the encounter. Just picture this. Of course, you're just sitting there one day, enjoying yourself in Paris, and suddenly a vampire attacks you. However, he escaped with his life. He survived, you know, due to his magic. Obviously, Crowley is a magician himself, so perhaps he was able to to conjure up enough counter magic to defeat this vampire. Of course, there are many different ways to defeat vampires, and Crowley, of course, knew what to do, being that he is such a great magician. Fortunately, you know, if you ever run into a vampire, just Make sure you know what to do. Crowley did, you know, break in case of vampire. If you don't have any idea, just watch Supernatural. They encounter a lot of vampires on the episodes and they will give you the basics of defeating vampires. And they're really annoying, those fucking vampires. We will probably not cover vampires on any episodes of Here Lies Metal because they're silly. You can find that on my competitor show, Here Lies Goth. That's where you'll find stories of vampires. Anyway, next, Crowley would find some love in his life, if you want to call it this. In 1902, he returned to Boleskine, continuing to terrorize the locals and write more pornographic poetry, as he did. However, it was at this point he met the young, beautiful Rose Kelly, sister of a friend of his, a painter friend, named Gerald Kelly. After a lengthy courtship of only a few hours after he met her, Crowley married her the very next day. He knew what he wanted. Crowley was a guy who knew what he wanted. So where do you go next? You go on a honeymoon after you get married, of course. And when you're rich, you can go wherever you want. So naturally, Crowley had to take her on a new adventure of a faraway place, some faraway and exotic land. And this, of course, would be Egypt. So in February of 1904, Crowley and his new bride, Rose Kelly, Traveled to Cairo for their honeymoon. Crowley, of course, had to go in style. So, in order to influence the locals and get what he wanted over there, Crowley came wearing a turban and claimed to be Prince Hayawa Khan traveling with his newlywed princess. So, of course, the Egyptians naturally bought it. They're like, wow, this guy is a Khan. He's a prince. So, we've got to do whatever he wants. This must have given him access to spend the night in the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid to, of course, celebrate his honeymoon with his new bride. You know, I guess that's all you have to do. You have to dress up like a con and be like, hey, uh, we're going to go in the pyramid over there if you don't mind. And everyone was like, oh, okay, you're a prince, so you can go in there, I guess, but you're a princess. You do your thing. Don't mind us. He wanted to show Rose what a great magician he was by performing ceremonies such as the ceremony of Goetia, to summon of course demons. <laughs> you know this involved lots of drugs and sex magic of course every like I said every ritual Crowley would usually perform involved having sex with something, whether it was a man or a woman or a horse. And I don't think I don't think Crowley was that weird, but you know it always involved sex. That's how the magic, you know, would to be performed. Sex had to be involved at all times. He was a rather randy, old chap. During the ceremony, Rose became delirious, repeating to Crowley, they are waiting for you. They are waiting for you. What did that mean? So Rose claimed that the god Horus, the falcon-headed god of ancient Egypt, was contacting her, Horus being the son of Isis and Osiris and the god of the sky. However, Crowley confirmed this because he had taken her to a museum immediately after the encounter, and she identified the falcon-headed god, saying, that's the thing that contacted me. Of course, this exhibit number of her, that where she identified the god Horus, proudly noted by Crowley, was numbered exhibit 666. Crowley was like, whoa. It's like numbered 666, dude. That's so awesome. And Horace, according to the message he gave Rose, proclaimed that on March 20th, the great equinox of the gods would come to bear, whatever that means. So later in this adventure, Crowley himself heard a voice identified as Awas, messenger to Horace, and he would soon identify himself as Crowley's guardian angel, according to the Book of Abramelin. This voice would be with Crowley from this point on and would influence him and in many other decisions during his debaucherous life. The voice then, at this point, dictated the famous Book of Law for the next three days. This is how Crowley came to write the famous Book of Law, and he claimed that humanity was entering a new aeon and Crowley would be the prophet. Now, if you're not familiar with the Book of Law, here is a quick excerpt. Above, the gemmed azure is the naked splendor of Nuit. She bends in ecstasy to kiss the secret adores of Hadit. The winged globe, the starry blue, are mine. O Anka'af Nakansu. Whatever the fuck that means. So that's a little expert from the book of law. Whatever any of that means, I have no idea. I'm sure a lot of drugs were consumed in order to receive such an important message from the gods. Ironically, Crowley would ignore the instructions of the book, commanded him to perform. He actually didn't like it at all. He sort of put it away and put it onto the back burner until later. Um, the book had ordered him to take the steli, number 666, the exhibit that had been identified by his wife. He was in, he was told by the book, by the voice I was, to steal this. He was also told to fortify his own island and to translate the book to all the world's languages. Instead, he put the book away for the time being, and he resented it. This, of course, is the book where his future religion of Thelema would be based. However, that will be in part two. Upon his return to Boleskine in July of 1905, Rose gave birth to their daughter named, get ready for this, Nuit Hathnor Hecate Sappho Jezebel Lilith. That was her name. That was what it said on her birth certificate. Keep that in mind. Crowley, of course, after the birth of his daughter, then wrote some more pornographic poetry. This one titled Snowdrops from a Courage Garden, Um, To entertain his recuperating wife, of course. You know, typical husband. Good husband. Now, naturally, spending too much time in one place, which Crowley can't have, um, he was getting bored. So he had to go on another expedition. He had to risk his life again and perhaps risk other people's lives. He went on an expedition in 1905 and he was 30 at this time. Still pretty young. What did you do when you were 30? What did I do when I was 30? I was not climbing mountains or spending nights in the great king's chamber. Of course, I wasn't a trust fund kid either. Being bored, like I said, as wealthy Englishmen do, very quickly, he he was bored very easily. He desired to lead his own expedition up the world's third largest mountain. This time, he wanted to lead this expedition, unlike last time. Now, the world's third largest mountain in the Himalayas is, is called Kangchenjunga, and of course this climb would prove to be disastrous, and we'll get into that. He had asked fellow experienced climber who had done many expeditions with him, Oscar Eckenstein, but he declined knowing that Crowley was a little bit too much of a loose cannon, he didn't really trust Crowley to lead an expedition, such a dangerous expedition, so he declined to take part in this particular mountain climbing expedition. Crowley, of course, and this is the worst fear of Eccleston, Crowley was kind of a fan of glamping, if uh, that's a stupid word to use, but, you know, basically camping with all the luxuries available, and decided to bring all of the creature comforts for this short hike, including 100 porters, to carry seven tons of food and other luxuries up a mountain. Now, as you can imagine, this was disastrous. The expedition was plagued with deadly accidents and regular desertions. As you can imagine, you have 100 probably very poorly treated porters being forced up this mountain carrying all your shit. If you can just imagine a cruel Crowley screaming at these native Sherpas, you know, move along, you brown people. Get our shit up this mountain now, you inferior race. It is our destiny to rule over you, of course, naturally. <laughs> After a few days of that and the freezing cold climbing up a mountain where there's no air, you're probably like, fuck you, pompous English motherfuckers. I'm going home. You can keep your fucking mountain. Fuck off. That or they just died. Wealthy English expeditioners treat the locals. This is how this was going. Just imagine this. Trolley. And Crowley was known to have mistreated these locals, causing some of his you know, co-climbers, uh, I believe they were from Switzerland, you know, to be like, you know what? Fuck you, dude. We're leaving. You're, you're a madman. From the very beginning, this expedition was a disaster because Crowley, of course, was a narcissistic and sadistic person. And ultimately, an avalanche occurred, killing four members of the party where Crowley refused to help the dying. Instead, he stayed in his tent and drank tea while he heard the cries of the dying men trapped in the avalanche and did nothing about it. So it was at this point that he was kind of shunned from the mountain climbing community. You know, kind of like how people are shunned from certain groups that they're in. Well, he was not really liked by mountain climbers after that. You know, kind of like the mountain climbing geeks at that point were like, oh, no, he's not. He's not in our club anymore. Following that debacle, traveling some more because a deadly mountain expedition was simply not enough for Crowley. Next, he traveled to a place called Mahorjabange to do what rich English folk did back then, and that was to shoot endangered species, of course, in some canned hunt. So after that, he next met his next he met his wife in Calcutta, as many aristocratic Englishmen went with their families, part of the empire. In Calcutta, but was thrown out of India for apparently shooting someone that tried to mug him. So even that wasn't, you know, didn't fly back then. Uh, you know, that's the only occasion that I could find of Crowley actually killing someone directly. You know, as crazy as he was and as decadent as he was and as psychotic as he was, uh, I really can't find any, any evidence of him actually murdering people for fun. He probably just saw it as some Indian native. So he's like, I would just shoot him. And of course, he was thrown out of India. Next stop was Burma, Uh, once again, to see his old flame, Alan Bennett. And um, it's amazing how far Crowley will go just to see someone, you know, an old friend or an acquaintance. Like, oh, yeah, I'll just think I'll go to Burma to see my friend. You know, this is back then. This wasn't about jumping in a plane like today. Even I wouldn't go 100 miles to see some old acquaintance. I mean, never, never mind on the other side of the world to just see some guy you knew for a short time. Does Crowley need, you know, sex that bad? I mean, you know, he could just choose, you know, maybe he just really admired this guy. I don't know. After that, next stop was China, where Crowley decided to smoke lots of opium. I mean, typical. Crowley loved doing drugs. Of course, his wife and kids were with him. His wife and daughter were with him at this time. And, you know, I'm just gonna go some opium dens. Don't mind me, honey. I'm just gonna go out and smoke some opium, do some rituals, do some sex rituals, smoke some opium. It's fine. He had a very understanding wife, you could say. Um, well, I'm sure she actually didn't really have a choice in the matter, but, but very understanding woman. That's a keeper, huh? You could just take her across the world and she has no problem with it. You could do all the drugs you want and sleep with all the other women you want. Did I mention Crowley was a narcissist and completely out of touch with reality? But as a result of her being so ideal and perfect, he then, um, abandoned them in order to travel to Shanghai to meet up with another old flame of his named Elaine Simpson we had met um, earlier because uh, she had admired this book of law hero. So, you know, they performed some more sex rituals and and did some drugs in Shanghai, most likely. And, you know, at the same time, he's like, yeah, honey, I'll, you know, I'm just going to see my other girlfriend. So you, you sit tight here. This is the kind of guy, this is the kind of narcissist, just clueless narcissist, Alistair Crowley was. This is uh, really the story I'm trying to bring you. It's amazing. So his next stop, traveling some more, was japan and then canada so now he's going the other way you know at first he traveled the world the other way now he's going from west to east before he went east to west so he's going the other way now uh he went to japan canada and finally new york city circling the very globe more than most of us leave the house at the time In a time before airplanes time of steamships and mind you it is a globe for all you fucking flat earthers out there go fuck off Get fucked. I mean, I'm obviously a globe-tard Satanist, as you can see. So I support this conspiracy that the Earth is a globe and not flat. So, And I'm going to try to force that on the world, being that I worship Satan. So there you go. Anyway, so you've got to just admire this guy's sense of adventure and extreme immeasurable level of machismo. This guy is way tougher than anyone you've ever met. And he's some pasty, wealthy Englishman raised in the lap of luxury. So imagine someone back then who was not rich, how tough they were. We wouldn't stand a chance back then. I think if you weren't tough back then, you were just kind of useless in society. Everyone just really looked at... Like, if you didn't rush to go to war when there was a war back then, like, you were just useless. And the richer you were, the more you were expected to go to the war. So... That's how it worked back then. Yes, we, we are just not as tough as they were in any way. I'm I'm going to admit it. You know, you see them all, you know, living in comfort all the time. But when, when push came to shove, they, they got dirty. And uh, we'll just never understand that. And it's fine. Fuck that. I don't want to live. I don't want to go to India and get a disease and die. After all this, um, he finally made it back to England. After God knows how long in a boat. It sounds like a terrible way to live. Um, he had learned... Unfortunately, that his daughter, with that big long name, which I'm not going to read again, had died of typhoid while in Rangoon after Crowley abandoned them, of course. And um, basically didn't care that much. And he blamed it on Rose. He said she didn't clean the bottle properly. And the baby got typhoid and died. He's like, oh, yeah, it's your fault. So anyway. But um, so, however, he just ended up having another child at Rose in 1907 named Lola Zaza. Uh, Lolo Zaza, interesting enough, lived all the way up until 1990, I found, so I'm not too familiar with what she did. I think she just lived a normal life. She's like, hey, I'm Alistair Crowley's daughter, but I'm just going to live a normal life, and I believe she lived in California, believe it or not. Nothing significant about her. As he lived with Rose, still at the Boluskyne house, he would bring his other mistresses to the house and torture them in front of her. He loved S&M and all that stuff, so he would sexually torture these women in front of his own wife and, you know, just... You know, that was what he did every day. Performed rituals, sexually tortured people, did drugs. So you can imagine this kind of behavior in Edwardian England. I, you know, I just think of these just oppressive bounds of society back then where you're not allowed to do anything, where there's such confines that everyone must adhere to, especially if you're wealthy. And this guy practiced none of that despite his affluent upbringing. Which I just find amazing. Like he, even today, like people would be like, "Wow, that guy's fucked up." So I can just imagine back then how people must have felt about this guy. That's, you know, where he probably got the title of the most wicked man in the world. Of course, being that he was wealthy, nothing was going to be done about it. You know, when you have that much wealth and influence, people are just going to be like, "Wow, that guy's crazy." You know, if it was a poor guy, he would be like, "Wow, that guy's in jail <laughs> for even daring to go against the the confines." And the established way of doing things during that time. If you were to deviate from that life, from all of the rules in society, you know, if you didn't, if you were just some guy, you know, you'd be outcast. So it's good to be rich. It's good to be the king. In the meantime, Crowley took on even more mistresses during his time at home. You know, he had room. Things were slow. He could take on some more. He had room in his bed and his dungeon. However, these weren't just regular women. They were people by the likes of actress Vera Lola Neville and author Ada Levinson. These, of course, are high society women. They're not just some prostitutes on the street. So next time you feel bad because you can't get any women, um, I now want you to feel worse. Because a guy like Crowley just, this guy just gets around. It's just amazing to me. Just what I'm learning here about his voracious appetite for women. And how he would just, yeah. You know, and these were times when you think people were a little bit more conservative in, you know, sexual activity. Maybe not so much. Maybe, you know, there was just um, really a whole hidden background. Because I can't imagine Crowley was the only person living like this. These women, of course, were not, you know, occultists or crazy people, but they got involved with him and were just as deviant as he was when they were involved with him. So I guess if you were a high society, there was, um, you know, really no rules for you could kind of just do what you want, as long as it was not public. You know, maybe people just had as much deviance in their behavior as people did today. Maybe it's really no different. So at this time, Crowley took on, he found a disciple for his teachings. And while he was at home, you know, albeit for a short time as usual, uh, Crowley continued his Abramelinic rites along with his old mentor George Cecil Jones and doing copious amounts of hashish in the process and, and writing about the power of hashish and in ri- the ritualistic uses of hashish. Crowley, of course, pioneered that. And um, he was once again contacted at this point by his guardian angel, Iwas, and given further texts for his future religion of Thelema, which we'll get to soon. Realizing that his limitless inheritance, however, was not really unlimited. This is about, you know, over 30 years of just blowing all of his money away on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Probably, you know, he needed a sugar daddy. He needed some money from somewhere. I mean, it's not like he was going to get a job. (laughs) That would be outrageous, I say. So he decided to employ a wealthy disciple from Cambridge, from his former alma mater, named Victor Neuberg. Of course, Victor, of course, was conveniently wealthy. He basically took on Victor as his student for money, of course. He decided to travel once again, this time to Spain and Morocco with his, of course, new disciple and naturally new lover, Victor, who he grew um, more of a liking to than his usual disciples and usual lovers. So he's off with this guy. Meanwhile, his wife is at home, suffering. Uh, Yes, honey, I'll be off to Spain with my new (laughs) colleague. (laughs) she'll be back in a few months, I say. (laughs) And following that adventure, Newberg took up to living at Bolaskein with Crowley, where they would indulge in sadomasochism on a regular basis. Um, If you can imagine that sort of thing. (laughs) You know, was like, oh, honey, I'm just going to go in the basement to my dungeon with my new friend, Victor. Don't mind me. Yes, Crowley had a good time. He was he was ahead of his time. I wonder how long that went on back then. You know, if that was a new thing, sadomasochism. You know, obviously it was, you know, torture before that. I wonder how torture turned into sex at that point and to turn into something you could do to, you know, for, for sexual pleasure. I wonder where that came about. We will not do that episode on Here Lies Metal, the history of sadomasochism. Despite our love of Rob Halford, we will not do an episode on sadomasochism. Now, traveling once again, believe it or not. Oh, my God, he's traveling again. Can't be. This time to Algeria and um to perform a set of additional rites, more rituals, and to summon yet another demon, he's always trying to summon some sort of he always has some sort of ideas like I'm going to summon this demon. This time it was a demon called Gronanzan And uh, this, of course, naturally required a blood sacrifice out in the desert. So these two guys went out to the desert and um tried to perform this. And Newberg's um claims they encountered this terrifying demon. And uh, Newberg said he, would, he went mad from the experience, from this terrifying experience of having Cronin's on up here. So, you know, very dangerous stuff, these occults. You might get, you know, you might ask for a demon and you might get one. And then it's time to call Supernatural, Sam and Dean. Sammy, looks like we got a demon. We got to uh, get the knife, okay? Do an exorcism. Do you watch Supernatural like I do? Tell me about it. Here lies metal at, at gmail.com. Tell me about how much you love Supernatural. I know. It's my guilty pleasure. Deal with it. So while in, G- in Algeria, this is the funny part, um, in order to gain respect by the natives, Crowley dressed like a wealthy sheik and put Newberg on a leash and shaved his head and walked him in public. So he's like, look at me. I am a great sheik and this is my slave. And, of course, the natives were like, whoa, that guy's pretty cool. Yeah, this is the kind of things Crowley would do. You know, of course, it probably was some sort of little sexual game he was playing as well. That's what Crowley did. I mean, Crowley took the dungeon out of a dungeon. He brought the dungeon out in the streets when it came to his lover, Newberg. You know, they, not boring, though. You know, any guy that walks his lover down the street on a leash with a shaved head is, uh, you know, he's up for anything. He's up for heroin. He's up for hashish. He's up for partying, the biggest party, the hardest party you've ever seen. He might have even loved metal if it were around back then. Or maybe he just would have been into the Dave Matthews band or Nickelback or something like that. Imagine that if, like, Crowley was around today and you asked him, what music are you into? And he's like, I like Nickelback. At this point in Crowley's life, it was time for Crowley to make his own, his own sort of religious cult. And following a lavish and decadent lifestyle, like I said before, Crowley's inheritance was nearly depleted at this stage. And um, he decided to sort of make his own little club for money. And um, 1907, Crowley and his former mentor from the Golden Dawn, Cecil Jones, founded an occult order of their own to succeed the defunct Golden Dawn. They wanted to make their own, and this was, of course, called the AA, which may have stood for, they're not really sure, this is a Latin translation, it is Argentum Astrum, however there are many different interpretations of, as to what it actually meant, borrowing most of its rights from the Golden Dawn, but with some added Philemic influence. In March of that year, Crowley began publishing a biannual publication named Equinox, it was the official publication of the AA and considered a review of scientific Illuminism. So they had their own magazine now. I wonder if you could still get copies of that magazine, if it still exists. In 1909, Crowley officially divorced his wife, Rose. Yes, she hung around for this long on grounds of infidelity. Um, her infidelity, I might add. Yes, yeah, if you can imagine that. Yes, she's like, she cheated on me. I want a divorce. She also, actually, interesting enough, she continued to live at Boleskine and but was eventually institutionalized in 1911 due to chronic alcoholism. You know, yes, who could blame her? She drank, she pretty much drank herself to death for being with Crowley that long. If you can imagine such a thing. Wow. However, to Crowley's benefit, a membership of the AA was growing as well as its popularity. So he's getting some income, you know, dues and stuff. You know, obviously wealthy people are going to join this club. Wealthy people with way too much time are on their hands in the Edwardian times love to, love. they love the occult. You know, there was a lot of seances going on at the time. You know, the supernatural was very popular at the time. So naturally it, it attracted rich people. He also wanted to attract a wider audience than just rich people. So he kind of made a public performance called The Rites of Artemis, where AA members would portray various deities. And um, in order to get the audience into it, and hey, this is a great idea, the audience was given a fruit punch that was laced with peyote to enhance their experience. The, The punches spiked, people. That must have been a lot of fun. I would have loved to experience a... Recital of Rites of Artemis. I would definitely drink the Kool Aid at that party. That sounds like a lot. That sounds like a great Saturday night, actually. He also, at this time, shacked up with an Australian violinist named Lila Waddell, who would provide music to the spectacle. One of his other, one of his many Scarlet Women, as he would call them. If you were a lover of Crowley and a woman, you were known as his Scarlet Women. And he had many a Scarlet Woman. This was just one of many. This one played the violin and conveniently provided the music for this spectacle. After this, he traveled to France and met yet another scarlet woman named Mary Desti, whom believed, who he believed that one of the secret chiefs, Abul Diz, was speaking through her, whoever this secret chief is, whoever this guy is, this god or whatever. He was speaking through her, and it was through this dictation Crowley wrote, the two-volume Magic Book 4 in 1912 and developed from this book the spelling magic with a K, M-A-G-I-K, referring to paranormal magic, whereas the other spelling magic, M-A-G-I-C, described those uh, unfortunate drunk guys that your mom hires at your 12th birthday, you know, magicians, the guys that pull rabbits out of their ass. You know, they're always uh, drunk and unpleasant. Those guys, those guys are magicians. Crowley didn't like them. You know, he was a cool magician. He was a magic After all that, Crowley discovered the Ordo Templi Orientis in 1912. This, of course, would be a major part of his life. He was known for his affiliation with the OTO. 1912, Crowley published perhaps his most famous work, The Book of Lies, when he was accused of publishing secrets from the German-based OTO by OTO leader Theodore Royce. Now, when confronted, Crowley convinced Royce that these similarities were simply coincidental and the two had become, as a result, the two had become lovers or friends, best friends. We don't know if they were lovers, not this time. But as a result, Crowley's charm got him appointed. Believe it or not, like imagine this, like one day the guy's accusing you of something, the next minute you are the head of the British branch of the OTO and was given the magical title of Baphomet. That's pretty cool. Suddenly you're fighting with someone, the next minute you're Baphomet. Hello, I'm Baphomet. Pleased to meet you. I am the English branch president of the OTO. Pleased to meet you. What can I do for you? He was proclaimed ex-supreme, rex, and sovereign Grand Master General of Ireland, Iona, and the Britons. There you go. What did you do in your life? What were you doing when you were in your 30s? He was Baphomet. Ah, the OTO was originally based on Freemason principles. However, Crowley had incorporated his Thelemite principles into the group, including um, the right of... Yes, I'm reading this correctly. The right of anal sex to all 11th degree members. How convenient. So in order to be or complete your 11th degree, you had to, you know, you had to do that. Crowley also wrote the famous Gnostic masses, which you've probably seen on YouTube. If not, look that up. It's kind of funny, which is a thelemic ritual and became part of an OTO ritual. And it's still, like I said, comically incorporated today. I just saw a video that. Our very good man, Chris from Long Island, sent me. And I watched this and, you know, it basically involves a naked woman, a very attractive naked woman sitting on a altar where a spear is placed between her legs, where a priest spends a ceremony kissing the spear. And watching this video, the priestess, the naked lady, um, is trying hard not to laugh. Um, ultimately, Crowley's relationship with Newberg, who was his protege at the time, would become strain, resulting in Crowley cursing him. You're cursed. I'm tired of you. You don't want to be around me? I curse you. That's what happened to poor Newberg. <laughs> that with um that is where we're going to end this part of episode one of part one of Alistair Crowley to Megatherion, Master of Sex, Drugs, and Mountain Climbing. There is a lot of information on Alistair Crowley here. There's a lot more. My voice is running out. This podcast will go on for over two hours if we get to both parts. So we're going to cut this in two. This, of course, is probably the height of Crowley's career. The next episode will involve his downfall. Um, we'll begin with um, him moving to the USA and his experience in the First World War. This will be very interesting. Uh, we're going to call it one, The Fall of the Beast, Part 2. However... That is all for this episode right now. Join us next week. We might might make it episode 13 or maybe we'll make it episode 14. Maybe we'll cut it up. Maybe we will put maybe a playlist next week. We'll see. I'll see what I want to do. But anyway, thank you for listening to this podcast about the infamous Alistair Crowley. Let's wrap up this podcast. Thank you once again for listening to the Here Lies Metal podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media, including Twitter at Here Lies Metal, Facebook at Here Lies Metal, Instagram at Metal Lies Here, and contact us on Gmail if you have any questions or comments or nasty things to say about what I just told you here. Here Lies Metal at gmail.com. Let us know. Give us feedback. I know there's a couple of you guys out there that are giving us weekly feedback, which is great. I would like you all to keep doing that and giving us your opinions on the entire history of metal. Now, be sure to subscribe to Here Lies Metal on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, wherever else podcasts can be found. And don't forget to rate us, even if you hate us. If this podcast sucks, only you have the power to destroy it. And once again, it is my passion to bring you, the listener, these tales of metal. However, if you'd like to support the show, your donations are highly appreciated. You can find me on... Patreon forward slash Here Lies Metal. So once again, thank you for listening to this somewhat educational and perhaps comical episode on the infamous Alistair Crowley. This, of course, was part one of a two part series. Our next segment in this series about Alistair Crowley will pick up again. In the point in Crowley's life where basically his where World War One begins and we'll go from there to his death. So we'll cover his debaucherous affair at the Abbey of Thelema in Sicily, where, which is probably the height of his debaucherous activities and basically his downfall and his heroin addiction and his legacy after his death, which influenced so many rock and rollers and so many songs and popular culture in the entire history of music and metal. It really goes with more than metal. There's a lot of, of course, just rock music that's influenced by Aleister Crowley as well. Obviously, you know, Led Zeppelin was obviously enchanted by the power of Crowley, specifically Jimmy Page, who had purchased the Bulls house, uh, which I don't know, we might have to do an episode on that alone. It might be interesting enough to do that. Of course, Jimmy Page is a pretty ridiculous person. And uh, of course, many rock stars have done music In celebration of the B-666. uh, Celtic Frost has an album called Two Megatherion. Which obviously is referring to Alistair Crowley. But anyway. Let's let's stop giving away everything. And let's cut this podcast. Let's end this podcast here. Thank you once again for listening. We hope you have a very good and pleasant metalful week in your lives. And we will see you next week. And the Here Lies Metal podcast. Once again, I am Maledictus, and I am giving you the story of metal. For I am the scribe to all things metal, and I will continue to scribe to you all, for it is my duty bestowed upon me by the gods. So stay tuned next week for part two of this series, Alistair Crowley to Megatherion, Sex, Drugs, and Esotericism and Mountain Climbing. Thank you. Good night.